one of our elders in this church is going to be preaching pretty soon. Uh, I talked about this with him uh, this morning. Because most of Brian's sermons involve at least one friend of At least I have a friend in the house. And one of one of the episodes um, that that I do remember that I do recall uh, is when this Rachel starts a new job, and and she's she's in this. I think she's in the fashion industry at this point, and and she's trying to, to work her way up and kind of fit in. She's trying to be successful in her new career. Uh, you know, keep up with uh, a, a changing world, and she realizes though she's feeling left aside. Kind of left out of some important discussions. Her boss is a smoker, and she keeps going out for smoke breaks with another one of Rachel's coworkers, who's kind of on Rachel's same plane. And every time they get back from a smoke break, they've had this great conversation and made all these decisions about the business, but she gets left out of it. So, um, as a result, she decides she's going to take up smoking. I worked at a company like that one time uh, in a past life. I worked at Texas Tool. That was an assistant manager. And there was another assistant manager who would always go out with the assistant manager and they'd smoke. And we're like, we're like, you can't smoke in front of your FaceTime with the boss. Like, this is not, this is not cool. Like, they're, they're bonding here. And so I get it. Like, it's very frustrating to feel like you're being left out of something. Um, maybe you similarly have been on the wrong side of some special treatment. Uh, when I was in high school, I think I was kind of on the right side of some special treatment, although I'm not sure if it was a good thing or not. Uh, one of my best friends was, was Indian, um, and apparently I was the one clean-cut, good American kid that they trusted. And he confided in me one time that his parents would trust him to do whatever he wanted as long as they knew that I was around. So apparently he was just telling his parents that he was going out and doing something with Chris. And then they were cool with whatever it was he did. And that started getting me kind of worried, like, what kind of adventures have I been on? You know, what, what kind of things have we been doing? And it seems like he winds up in a bad situation. What am I doing to get blamed for it? Um, so I don't know if it's always good to be on the good side of favoritism. When we look at, at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, James is addressing a situation of favoritism among these Jewish Christians in the diaspora. And he spends a lot of time on this. We'll talk about that in a second. But it seems like a good idea there is that this is cosmetic favoritism is contrary to faith in Christ. Cosmetic favoritism becomes external favoritism. It's contrary to faith in Christ. And he gives us three reasons for his approach this morning. This is contrary to our calling. He says contrary to common sense. And he says contrary to Christ's law. So we're going to dig into that this morning and, and examine this passage in, in its context. We've been working our way through the book of James. Um, we are not quite halfway through this series. It'll take us through uh, the spring semester if you're a, a student. Um, and, and now we're into verse, uh, verses 1 through 13 here of chapter 2, which is one of the longest sections of James's letter. And, and the basic teaching is pretty simple on the surface. In, in verses 1, and then we'll extend it to 2 through 4, but in verse 1 he, he gives the command, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, so show no partiality. 
And he gives this, this example for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man dressed in shabby clothing also comes in, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, you say, sit here in a good place, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So on the, on the surface of this, it seems, seems pretty obvious. Um, there's a lot of theology sort of packed into what James is saying, though. So I want to dwell on this first verse just for a moment. James says that we should show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And, and the faith here, notice that it's the faith. There's not sort of a generic um, faith that any kind of faith or any kind of belief is okay. It's the faith that James is concerned about. The faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And notice three things in this singular, immovable faith we hold. It's in Jesus, and he describes Jesus three ways. First, he's the Christ, which is a, the Greek word for the, the Hebrew Messiah, which is the anointed one. God's chosen king. That's going to become important in this passage. Jesus is God's chosen king. He's Lord, which means he's master of all. He's the one to whom we owe allegiance. And he's glorious. Meaning that he is enthroned in heaven as God. So we've really busted out the adjectives here to talk about Jesus. And so we're, we are, we're putting this really big picture of Jesus here in making this point that we should show absolutely no partiality. So there's a, there's a significant contrast being made here, and James wants to get our attention. He could have just said Jesus, he could have just said Lord, but he says, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And notice that it's apparently possible to have this true faith in Jesus and still show partiality because he has to command them to not do it. So it's possible to have partiality and be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, and this idea of partiality here, this favoritism, it's a passing judgment by external appearances. And for the most part, I've noticed that there's three types of people in the world. There are a few who just do not see it as a problem. And they're quite proud of the fact that they are partial to some people and not others. We generally look down on those people, but we know that they exist. There are those who acknowledge that partiality is wrong with their lips, but they don't really care. Perhaps they justify their partiality by passing off as having a legitimate grounding there's a good reason for my partiality. Or it's a minor type of partiality. This is not a serious favoritism. This isn't a serious divisiveness. This isn't, this isn't a big deal. This isn't the kind of stuff the Bible is talking about. But they do it. They show favoritism. And there's a third group. And that's those who acknowledge partiality. They acknowledge that it's a problem, but they think they're immune to it but they're deceiving themselves. I'm guessing a lot of us fall into that category. We, we might be inclined to think that we, we are fair-minded people. 
And that as Christians, we're not those kind of people that show partiality. But I think that's easier said than done. And as we're going to see, this is a particularly insidious vice. And I think it's even one we struggle with here at Gateway Downtown. Verses 2 through 4 give a, a, a hypothetical but rather specific situation. So it's so specific, even though it's a hypothetical, it, it seems like this is a real problem that James has heard that these Christians scattered in the diaspora are having. It makes clear that the partiality that James is concerned about in the lives of these Christians is a partiality for those who have means. There's a strong dichotomy he paints here, right? We got a, a man with fine clothing and expensive jewelry, and, and there's a man with tattered and, and ragged clothing. They both enter a Christian worship service. That, that's at least what most commentators, most scholars think he means by their assembly here. It's a Christian worship service. Some think that maybe these two hypothetical men are guests. That's why they need to be shown where to sit. Uh, this is maybe their first time in the assembly. We know that even the early Christians, their worship meetings were generally open to the population. People could come in here, check things out. Um, so maybe these are guests, but it's kind of hard to know for, for sure if that's what James has in mind or not. Um, but early Christians didn't have churches as we think of them. They didn't, they didn't have buildings, let alone cathedrals and, and things like that. Uh, they often met in homes or, or whatever place they could find and use. So you can imagine it might not have always been easy. It's not like they had you know, all their pews set up and there was a, a place for everybody. It, it might not have always been easy to find a seat. And in any case, whatever is going on here, they're showing the rich man considerably more favor and attention. And James' appraisal here is scathing. When he says, he says, have you not made distinctions? He uses the same word. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions? He uses the same word that he does back in chapter 1. When he is talking about the man who doubts. Who's double-minded. And who shouldn't think that he's going to receive anything from God in prayer. We, we spent a long time talking about this idea of the impossibility of having a double-minded commitment to Christ. And it's the exact same word he uses here. And I don't think it's a coincidence because we see throughout this book of James, every single passage we look at, it seems like James is, is bringing in little key words from earlier passages and he twists their meaning just a little bit to kind of draw these threads between all these topics that seem like they don't connect. But he uses these key words to connect all these seemingly disparate ideas. And I think that's exactly what he's doing here. He's kind of using a little bit of a pun. They're making distinctions between people in the body of Christ, but at the same time, they're being double-minded in their following of Jesus Christ. They're, they're essentially denying in their actions, the faith they claim to hold. So this is a scathing rebuke. To James, this sort of favoritism is not a minor issue. Now, th this is clearly a, a rich-poor distinction, and, and I don't think that that has died uh, in the modern 
church, at least not in America. Um, I still think that's an appropriate distinction. Even here, there, there's two Clevelands, isn't there? There's the up-and-coming downtown, right, where it's exciting and, and, and all the young people with, with good jobs out of college are moving and flocking, and it's awesome. You know, and then a couple blocks away from downtown, but you don't cross those streets, is the homeless shelters. There's Ohio City, and then right next door there's Clark Fulton. There's the Cleveland Clinic, and everything's big and beautiful and wonderful, and then there's Kinsman. Right? So there's sort of two Clevelands. Why? Because of partiality and favoritism, we can, we can trace the roots. We can trace them. Um, my uh, great-great-great-grandfather lived in Cleveland. He's buried less than a mile from my house. I had no connection to Cleveland before I came out here 10 years ago. And found out that uh, a number of people on my mom's side of the family actually were, were living out here and born out here. And so I've got this great-great-great-grandfather who lives less than a mile from my house in Woodland Cemetery, or lives, <laughs> I guess, uh, in, in Woodland Cemetery, um, which is a cool cemetery if you've never been there. It's just a very neat cemetery. There's a Civil War monument there. Um, you know, it's on the east side. It's down by 55th, you know, so that's a bad area of town, right? Um, and my mom found all these old postcards from these old relatives. And what's really interesting is that as they get later, as time moves on, so there's these postcards where they're living in the city, and then there's like these letters and stuff where they're living just a little bit outside the city, and then there's these letters where they're living a little bit further outside the city. You can almost trace the white flight in the addresses of some of my family's letters moving further and further away from the city. The area that I live in, I live in Central, uh, it's filled with churches, actually it's filled with Jewish synagogues. If you go up and down East 55th Street and, and travel in that area, it's full of old Jewish synagogues that are now African-American churches because um, when white flight started to take root, a lot of the Jewish synagogues, you know, traditionally Jews have to walk to synagogue, uh, especially if they're more conservative or orthodox. And so if they wanted to move the synagogue, they really had to decide as a community to leave because if you want to move out to Shaker or Beechwood, you're not going to walk there from East 55th Street, Right? So what happened is that they'd vote and entire communities would leave in one week, emptying the neighborhoods. And so all these old synagogues are run down and many of them have been uh, adopted by African-American, predominantly African-American churches. So there are two Clevelands. Now, a lot of it's rich, poor. But it's hard to ignore that the rich-poor distinction, you know, the difference between, you know, Cam's Corner and Kinsman, isn't just rich-poor, is it? It's hard to ignore the fact that with those income disparities, they tend to mirror racial lines in our city. Um, you can't escape that reality in 21st century America. Is that the church? Sure. Because I can point to black churches and I can point to white churches in this city. And it's not just, you know, oh, well, I, just, I, I go to the church closest to my house. No, we don't. Uh, as I drive, I, it takes me five minutes to get here from my house, and I drive past at least six predominantly African-American churches on my way 
here. So we still are divided, aren't we? But interestingly here, James is concerned first about Christians who mostly seem to be poor. Most of the people he's writing to seem to be poor. And they're, show, they're the ones showing favoritism to the rich. So it's not, it's not even the rich protecting their own or this ethnic group protecting their own ethnic group. He's talking about poor people who are showing favoritism to the rich. And we don't think about that as much, but it happens, doesn't it? It's just as bad and perhaps it's even more insidious. We, we envy those people who have something that we don't have. We want their respect. We want their attention. Or, or because on some level society says that they're better, so we implicitly think that they're better. We do this with celebrities. We do it with religious teachers who are rich and have fancy planes and seem to have it all together. We do it with our politicians. Have you ever seen in your lifetime a middle-class person become president? Donald Trump's just, you know, exceptionally rich. They've all been rich. It's interesting, isn't it? And so we, who are even those of us who are not rich, still tend to show favoritism to those who have means. Well, James says that there are, like I said, three reasons why this is uh, completely off base. And the first one, he says, is that it's contrary to our calling. And you see this in, in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Now, this is tricky, and I need to try it a little bit carefully. Um, James says, look, God chose the poor. God chose the poor over against the rich. God showed some sort of preference for the poor rather than the rich. And so he's showing a preference. And so that showing preference, us showing preference for the rich, is contrary to the way God has called us. Now that's, that's touchy. That's, a, that's kind of a big idea. So to get to the bottom of this, we need to wrestle with a couple different touchy subjects. Uh, we need to get to the bottom a little bit of what it means that God shows. And then we need to kind of get to the bottom, what does God mean by, and what is James talking about by the poor? And, and sort of by extension, the rich. Let, let's talk about God's choice here. There, there's a fundamental doctrine of Scripture called election. And the idea is that in some way God has purposefully and deliberately chosen some people rather than other people for his good purposes. Now, some of you are getting a little butterflies. I understand. But no reputable, orthodox, biblical scholar denies that fact. There's no, it's all over Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament. You, you can't avoid it. If you read the Bible straight through, you'll come across it over and over again. I, I wish I could tell you there's some secret hidden meaning. Oh, the Greek word here for choice actually means, no, it means choice. It means 
to select some from among a pool of other possible choices. That's, that's what the word means. I wish I could tell you it means something really cool and unique, but no. It, they call it choice because that's the word that's there. Now, we usually think about election in terms of salvation. And the Bible does too, but the Bible is clear that God chooses people for many purposes. Not, salvation isn't the only thing that, that the Bible says about choice and election in the mind of God, but salvation is a key one. Um, and at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I, I thought there was some debate, right, about, about God chooses us or we choose God. Isn't that, isn't that like the big debate that, that Christians get into and, and things like that? Yeah, but that's probably not the right way to put it. Um, in, in seminary, I had the privilege to take New Testament under Don Carson, uh, who's very, what we call Calvinistic. Uh, the, you know, the Calvinist possession, uh, position uh, means that we believe that God chose from all eternity some for salvation. And that, that choice was based on his good pleasure and nothing intrinsic in us human beings. I also had the privilege to take Romans with Grant Osborne, who uh, is rather Arminian. An Arminian position is that is the complete other side of the debate. Armenians believe that God's choice was conditional. That is, God chose those that he foresaw would have faith. So he looked into the future, he saw who was going to have faith, and those were the ones that he chose to save. But, but notice, uh, both positions don't deny that God chooses. The, the difference really is whether the choice is unconditional or whether the choice is conditional upon our faith. Now, there are a lot of other passages in Scripture that deal with this issue in a lot more detail, and Lord willing, one of these days we will hit one of those passages and we'll talk about it in more detail. But we do need to understand a, a couple things. When, when I was in undergrad and I was in college student, we would get together and we'd just have all these crazy theological discussions and we didn't know what we were talking about. We would talk about it in terms of, does God choose us or do we choose God? And that's just not a very theologically accurate way of looking at Scripture. Solid, uh, solid biblical scholars, they, they all, because you can't, because the word election, the word elect, the word choose is all over scripture. You don't ignore it, you don't throw it out because it's uncomfortable. But theologians have different ways of how they understand God's election. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to get into a debate about which position is right, the, the Calvinist or Midian position, but we do have to understand that election uh, we don't want to understand it in sort of these overly simplistic terms. There, there is a doctrine that God has chosen people. Now, whatever, however you interpret that um, is a discussion for another day. But it's essential that we understand that God made a choice and God's preference in some way, according to James here, was for the poor. And so it's unfitting for these poor Christians to show preference for the rich. So that leads to the question, okay, then James, who are the poor? Because it, it can't mean entirely just everybody who doesn't have anything. It, it seems impossible because um, a couple things. Number one, James talks about some rich people in this group of people among these Christians. And so if there's some rich people here uh, that are Christians and are saved by God, then clearly it's not entirely bad to be rich. Um, one of Jesus' followers, Joseph of Arimathea, 
who had the tomb in which we sung about this morning that they laid Jesus in. Obviously, uh, a very rich individual. So who are the poor? Well, there's sort of this extended metaphor in the Old Testament. And, and it goes something like this. The materially poor, those who don't have anything in this world, who, who struggle for food and clothing and shelter and transportation and those sorts of things. Um, in the community of faith in Israel, they're so destitute that their only hope is to rely on God for their sustenance and their survival. And, and, and so you can see that this, this kind of morphs into this class of people that are spiritually poor in that they realize that their only spiritual hope is to rely on God. Jesus says, blessed are the poor for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. But then he adds also, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so you can say, you know, we, we picture the poor going out go, and, and not having food and not having fresh water. That's something we don't even deal with in our culture. Um, but going without food and going without water and being hungry and being thirsty and being desperate for something to eat and something to drink. And Jesus says, imagine that you are spiritually poor so that the thing that you long for is righteousness. That you long for righteousness the way somebody who is absolutely destitute longs for a morsel to eat or a drop of fresh water. And so you see how the, the categories kind of morph from material poverty to spiritual poverty. It doesn't wipe out the material because I think there's something still true about that, right? Because Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because if you've got every possible thing you need, it can become a trap that you forget that everything that you have really is from God. It can be a trap, a deception that leads you to believe that you take care of you and not that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, as we read in chapter 1. And so there's a real danger uh, for material wealth and prosperity. In fact, repeatedly in Scripture, it can be a curse as often as it can be a blessing, contrary to what some people on TBN would have you believe. Um, so James is once again playing on a word with a little bit different sense. It's, it's got a material sense where the, the opposite of the poverty is riches, and it's got a spiritual sense where the opposite of poverty is unrighteousness. And James is playing on that sort of dual meaning. Those who recognize their utter need before God, these are the ones who are rewarded. These are the ones who are showered by God's grace. It's by God's choice. God chose to bless those who recognize their utter spiritual destitution. And that's true whether you, you're more of the Calvinist position or whether you're the Arminian position. It, it's, it's still true that that's how God chose to operate. So Christians then, in a very real sense, are the poor. 
At least we hope we are. A Christian who doesn't recognize his or her utter need before God is just not really a Christian. If you have not yet realized that you greatly, powerfully need atonement, that you need reconciliation, that you need grace, that you need this Jesus who was God in the flesh to come and be tried and tempted as you've been tried and tempted and to come through unscathed and sinless and without rebellion, that he could go to the cross and pay for the death that you deserve to die so that by placing your faith in him you can receive this grace and forgiveness and atonement. If you have not come to the point where you realize the depth of that need in your heart, you are simply put probably not a follower of Jesus Christ. And there's not really in between. And so a true Christian is spiritually poor. But if you have, if you've recognized how impotent and how weak you are, then you're blessed. You're blessed to have been rich, not with money, but rich with faith. You're blessed not with a trust fund from your parents, but with inheritance in Christ's kingdom. You're blessed not with the fleeting admiration of the masses, but with the, by the faithful love of the king of the universe. So the question is, have you recognized the depth of your need? Are you spiritually poor? Well, secondly, James says, Come on, guys, this is contrary to common sense. At the end of verse 6 and in verse 7, James writes, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, this is kind of interesting. It's a very pragmatic, it's probably not James's strongest argument, but it's important that we, we look at what he's trying to say here. Uh, he brings up three charges against the so-called rich. They oppress Christians, they drag the Christians into court, and they blaspheme a certain honorable name. So let's look at it. The first two kind of go together. Um, again, James is mostly writing to some poor, materially poor Christians who are also spiritually poor because they are Christians, and they're being harmed by the rich. And that's not really all that unfamiliar, is it? There's no way of knowing the exact circumstances, but the, the combination of oppression and being dragged into court uh, certainly brings up a lot of ideas that are not uh, dissimilar from our culture today and what we knew happened in the ancient world of first century Palestine and diaspora and the Greco-Roman world. And the idea of taking the Christians to court certainly suggests that they are using their financial might to oppress the poor. We don't know anything about that today, do we? No, we, we all know that. We all talk about that. We just accept it as a, a blanket statement of truth. We know that there is on some level a true statement that whoever affords the best lawyers wins, right? We, we, we sense that. We get that. We all know that deep down. We'd like to think we're better, but we're not. You know, we think, oh, there's ancient people. We're corrupt and weird. But we're not any different. 2,000 years and the same things are happening. Considering how the 
uh, consider how the financial markets conspired to overextend credit to individuals whose income and credit history probably couldn't support it during the financial crisis of 07 and 08. They made a ton of money by doing that. Their house of cards came down on their head, but they made a ton of money by overextending credit to people they knew couldn't support it. <clears throat> and even when things went bad, was there grace? Was there a recognition that, boy, we, we really put some people in a tough situation. Maybe we should show them grace. There wasn't grace. There was foreclosures in court in a mass scale. So that 44105 Slavic Village in Cleveland, Ohio was the foreclosure capital. There were more foreclosures per capita in Slavic Village than any other zip code in the country. Even now, even now, individuals, not even, not even the big evil banks, so take the big evil banks out of that. Sure, they played a part. But individuals right now are scooping up homes in foreclosures and they're doing for sale by owners thing with owner financing so that the, the, the new uh, person who wants to buy the house pays the, the owner the, the mortgage and the rental payment and they're, you know, obviously they're getting people who can only afford a very, very inexpensive house. And some of them are just hoping for a foreclosure, hoping that they miss payments. Why? Because you get to keep all those payments they did make, you get to take the house back, and you get to sell it again. You make more money that way. It's, it's a whole thing that, that's set up to be predatory. And that's individuals who are doing that, not even, not even the big evil banks, although they do it too. Think about Ace Cash, Cash Express. They'll put up a, a store across the street from a Cleveland public school, but they don't waste their time in Bay Village or Beachwood. And, and depending on what a given state allows, they'll charge the most desperate, in trouble, materially poor interest rates approaching 1,000% APR. In the, in the ancient world, variations on all these practices were not uncommon. But these guys also blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. A better translation, maybe a little bit more awkward, though, might be they blaspheme the honorable name which was called upon you. And the sense seems to be one in which we as Christians are labeled by the name of the one who bought us. We're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He interposed his precious blood, and, and he's the one who properly owns us. So it's like Jesus Christ, he's our Lord. We like to, we like to mitigate that. We like to you know, sanitize that a little bit because our country had a really uh, a bad run-in with slavery. But Jesus is our master. We are his, properly his servants. He owns us, and he's a good master. He's a gracious master. He loves us, and he cares for us, and he provides for us. But he's our master. We're owned. And it's like, uh, it's like Jesus had looked down upon the, the crowds and he's reached out and he says, mine. He is the Christ's. She is the Christ's. And we've had that name placed upon us as a proper label of ownership. And what a wonderful thing to serve such a sweet master. But his name is blasphemed. It, it, we don't know exactly in what way. Um, we can only speculate the details. Were the rich mocking Jesus? Maybe. Were they mocking the Christians' peculiar customs? Maybe. Um, 
were they mocking the Christian's morality? Quite possibly. All those things are possible, and we know all those things happened in the ancient world. All those things could be included in more. And, and, and so James is saying, look, they're doing these things to you, so why are you showing them favoritism? You know, but we do the same thing, don't we? We complain and we complain and we complain about the rich and powerful. You know, but as soon as they're on our side, we love them, right? We absolutely love them. I mean, um, you know, we, we, we all hate the rich, but, you know, if, if it's uh, Warren Buffett, if, if we're on the left, you know, if we're a Democrat, you know, we're really annoyed by the rich. Oh, but Warren Buffett, he's a billionaire. He agrees with me. So now all of a sudden we're on Warren Buffett's side. We love him, right? Or if you're on the right, you know, um, Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump's saying all the things I want him to say. You know, I don't really like rich people, but now all of a sudden I'm on Donald Trump's side. It's, it's funny how we, we understand, and again, this isn't to say all rich people are evil. There are dangers, scriptural dangers about riches. But it's funny how we do this too. We complain about the rich. We know that the rich are oftentimes not on our side. That they're in for making their own money. That's how they got rich. Sometimes that involves squashing other people along the way. But when they're on our side, we really like them. When they're saying the things that we want to hear, we, we enjoy them. And we want to prop them up. And so maybe we're not too dissimilar from James's audience. We don't like them. You know, we, we do this with uh, uh, athletes, right? These rich and powerful athletes. As soon as we find out that one of them like, says something about Jesus being good, we want them to have to speak at every church. They, they may have been a Christian for two weeks, and they don't know, um, you know, one lick of theology. But they became a Christian, and everybody knows their name, and they make millions of dollars, and they, they got swag, and so they're going to come, and they're going to they're gonna speak at my church. They're going to speak at my youth group. They're gonna, because, because obviously they're cool. They've got it all together, right? It's so absurd. It's so absurd. Instead of treasuring the riches of faith, we treasure the riches of this world. So we need to love our enemies. But we don't want to preen over our persecutors. We have to, we have to walk out balance. All right, Just because we're being oppressed, we still got to go out and love them because Jesus tells us we have to love them. But that doesn't mean we have to fawn over them. Okay? Well, the third reason that James gives here, he says, showing favoritism is contrary to Christ's law. And this is the big one. In verses 8 through 13, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressor. Let's, let's just pause there for a second. Now, the royal law, this is an interesting phrase, because, um, and this doesn't come out in, in, in English as well, because words like royal and kingdom and ruler and king 
are all basically from the same root in, in Greek. And so we've got this idea of King Jesus. We've been called into an inheritance in the kingdom. And James is now talking about the kingdom law. And, and the, the royal law or the kingdom law. This idea of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is he, what is he talking about? And uh, again, he, like we talked about last week, it's not so much the, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, although that's not irrelevant like we talked about last week. But he, he's, James is seeing how all of the Old Testament law is brought up and fulfilled in Jesus. It's completed in Jesus. It's interpreted through the lens of Jesus Christ. And, and he sets the law on a higher plane. James calls it the law of liberty. He calls that again in this passage. And it's the law of liberty, remember, because in Christ we're free of the guilt of not keeping the law, of knowing that we're unrighteous, knowing that we're wicked. We're free from that. But we also are empowered by his spirit to keep the law in a way we never could have outside of Jesus Christ. And so it becomes a sweet thing for us. It becomes a wonderful thing for us. It becomes a freeing thing for us to be able to go and serve Jesus Christ knowing that there's no guilt or condemnation when we fail and knowing that we've got unique power by his spirit to do so. And that's a very, very sweet place to be. So we're, we're taught by Jesus himself and he's borrowing from the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, look, if you do that, you're doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing a sin. So it's not just bad, it's not just awkward, you're committing a sin. And he says, you're convicted by the law as transgressors. And his analogy here is that whoever keeps the law the whole law, but fails in one point, becomes accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He's following Paul here, he's following Jesus here. We don't think about law this way. We tend to think about law as like a, a codified list of city ordinances or state ordinances, um, you know, what does murder have to do with adultery? You know, adultery is not a crime in our, in our society. Uh, what does murder have to do with stealing? If I, if I murder someone, I'm a murderer. If I steal, I'm a thief. What, what does one have to do with the other? But there's a difference between uh, man's laws and God's laws. And, and the difference is this, that when you break a law, it's not so much that you are breaking uh, a codified rule in a rule book. It, it's not like you, you violated, um, you know, Ohio Revised Code Ordinance 526, paragraph 3, subsection 2, sub-subsection A. You're rebelling against the lawgiver. You're not rebelling against the law, you're rebelling against the lawgiver. God has spoke out the law. You're not rebelling against the one command. You're rebelling against him. 
I'll give you an example. Um, when my boys defy what I tell them to do, it is a bad day for them, right? Or at least a bad 30 minutes or so. Um, they can be really good all day long. They can do 90% of everything right. But that doesn't get them an A. If, if I give them an explicit instruction, go clean your room, and then they just deliberately do not clean the room, it's not like, well, there was a bunch of things that you're supposed to do and you missed one. No, it, it's bigger than that. It's not that they defied the rule, they defied me. They rebelled against me. They damaged the relationship with me. They showed a disrespect for me. And so there's a deep problem. Right? There is a, there is a deep issue. And, and you would do the same thing at, at work. If you're an employee or your boss, if you are an employee, if their boss gave you an explicit instruction and you just said, no, nah, screw that, I'm not doing that you know there's going to be a consequence to it. Because they're, they're not going to put up with somebody just absolutely rejecting their authority, somebody just defying their wishes and their will. It's not that you broke that specific instruction. It's that you showed no respect for the person giving the instruction. And so when we, when we violate God's law, it's not so much that, well, you know, I know God wants about a thousand things for me, but I do like 900 of them well. That's, that's not an A, right? You're a lawbreaker because it's not that you're pretty good. It's that you've just rebelled against the one who lovingly tried to point you in the right direction. And so it's not about the specific code and the specific list of demands. It's about your response to the one who gives the demands. And so whether it's adultery, you know, whether, it, whether it's having sex outside of a marital relationship, or whether it's murder, whether it's killing somebody without uh, due cause, um, or whatever, or whether it is showing favoritism based on the ridiculous external cosmetic things like skin color and uh, how much money is in your bank account and, you know, your hair color and the, your accent or, or all these things that we make a deal about in our culture. You're a lawbreaker. You say, well, well that, that's a big one, James, and this is, a, this is just a little sin. No, no, no. It's not about how big the effect of what you did was. It's about who you defied. And the one you defied is the king. So even if you're thinking, I, I, I didn't do one of the biggies like murder. I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't have sex outside the confines of marriage. But don't you see you're defying Jesus? You're defying the royal law, the king's law. Verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by this law of liberty. 
there's, a, there's sort of a regularness to this. Be speaking, be acting. Conduct your life in a way that your words and your actions bear out the life of a person who's going to be judged by Jesus. Even Christians are going to be judged by Jesus. Paul makes that clear that we're all going to stand before Jesus and we're all going to give an account for how we conducted our lives and how we spoke. And guess what? You know, we're going to go through the Ten Commandments like you think of them, sure. We're going to talk about our favoritism. We're going to talk about our partiality. We're going to talk about um, did we show favoritism to people who looked like us? Did we show favoritism to people who are in our more comfortable income bracket? Or did we show favoritism to people that we thought were better than us because they were richer than us? Did we, share, did we show favoritism to people because they were in the right age bracket as us? Or did I shy away from people who are young because they're stupid? Or shy away from people that are old because they're old farts? I mean, we're going to answer to Jesus for all of these things. Because Christ has called us to be one. No matter what our original language was, no matter what our skin color is, no matter what our economic status is, no matter what we look like, smell like, you know, you know, sound like, what, whatever category you want to put on people, Christ has called us to be one. And so knowing that we're going to be judged by Jesus who called the people of the earth, different races and cultures and and, and accents and languages and every tribe and tongue and together into one body that this Jesus who calls people together like that and showed no favoritism or partiality in who he chose is going to judge us act similarly. Because that's the standard that he used. That's the standard that we're going to be measured against. And there's a warning there, right? That's an implicit warning. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The warning is a little less implicit now and quite a bit more explicit. Is our dealing with people, particularly people who are different than us? And right now, just take different any way you want to take different. Because if we've all been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, those differences don't matter. They, they too smart for you, they too stupid for you. Or they, you know, um, they live in the right neighborhood for you, they live in the wrong neighborhood for you. You know, they've got the right career, the right profession. You know, they, they're with it. They're hip, they're cool. They've got celebrity status, they don't have celebrity status. Whatever. Take it any way you want. If you show mercy and a concern, consideration... For those who are different than you. Or not. Because those who show mercy, who live lives of mercy, will be shown mercy and judgment. And those who don't, won't. But here's the beautiful thing. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And here's, I think, a little bit of what James is saying. He's not saying that mercy is your get-out-of-jail-free card. I think he's talking about our judgment. Because throughout this passage, he's mostly been focused on our judgment, our judging distinctions between people. Those who have, have known the mercy of Jesus Christ fit into a fourth category of people. I said there was kind of three categories of people. The people who are, uh, they show favoritism and they don't care. They're almost proud of their favoritism. There's people who, who 
claim that favoritism is bad, but they kind of make excuses for their favoritism, and then there are those people that are just completely in the dark. They think they're a different category of people. They think, oh, I'm not like that, and they're just blind to their own favoritism, and that's most of us. But in Jesus Christ, we have another option. We have a fourth category. We're people who've been shown such great mercy Despite all the reasons why Jesus could have said, I'm done with you. Those who are in Christ, they know that they're poor. They know that they're destitute. They know that their only hope was the blood of Jesus Christ. And because they've been shown such, such great mercy, it frees them to not make those kind of distinctions about other people. It doesn't mean we're perfect at it, but we, fit into, we can fit into a fourth category where we go, God, I know I'm wicked, and I know I'm bent toward these vices, these, these temptations to label people and, and to categorize people and to distance myself from people who are different. I know that that is just in my heart, but I know, God, that even though I was dif- distant from you, even though... I was different from you, though I was wicked and you were righteous, and though I was sinful and you were sinless, yet you died for me who was different than you. So God, help me to love and show mercy to those who are different than me. And so the mercy we've been shown in Jesus Christ frees us to live differently, to think differently, to act differently, to speak differently. For there to be a gentleness and an openness and a welcomingness about us among those who are different. And so we bind ourselves together by something much more significant than skin color, much more significant than language, much more uh, significant than economic status, but the blood of Jesus Christ. by which we're saved. So let's put away this cosmetic favoritism that's contrary to the faith in Christ. And let's be a people who are bound together by the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ for his glory's sake. Let's pray. Father God,